we've all had that experience at one time or another of feeling alone, even those closest to us at times disappoint us. And we can have that sense of, Lord, I'm all alone. Sometimes even because of our sin, many times God feels distant from us. And we experience that. But folks, remember, always remember when you're going through those times that Jesus experienced that far greater than any of us ever He knows. He knows what it feels like to be alone. <clears throat> to have his followers run away and when they return, his own mother and some others, they're helpless to do anything for him. But he was all sufficient to do everything they needed to death and shed him and shed blood. He was willing to do all of this. John presents then in John 19, you can turn there, and we will see the death of the king. And the death of Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews, is drawing very near as we go to verse 28. It's noon. God is going to use his very creation to mark the terribleness of this moment. As darkness falls upon the earth, an unnatural, supernatural, excuse me, darkness from noon to three. It says the sixth ninth hour of the synoptics. Why was it dark? The judgment at that moment of the sins of the world the sins of people throughout all history, our sins included, fell upon the Son of God. And in that moment, as he bore the weight of that sin, God marked that by darkness. Darkness was an imagery for everyone to notice. It's not recorded in John. It's recorded in the synoptics, and we'll see that in just a minute. But have you noticed that throughout this crucifixion, there's two things that John in particular has focused on. Through the words of Pilate, the words of Caiaphas, he's using what they think they are saying of their own free will, and they are. But they're proclaiming that Jesus is the Jews. Not exactly clear. He is truly the king of the Jews. And in some way that's hard for us to understand, it truly is. This is a moment of his glory as he suffers and dies for the sins of the world. But also, there's also in a way that the other Gospels don't intend to do. It's there, but it's not to the same extent. He's showing Jesus is also in full control over this whole ordeal. That Jesus is not at the whim, the victim of others, helpless, but he is in full control. We see that today, even in his death. John makes that very clear. He's going to describe the magnificent climax, the peak of Jesus' voluntary sacrifice in verses 28 through 30. And he will describe the death of the king, folks, the death of the D.A. Carson has a great quote here. 
I'll insert it here. He said, it was not nails that held Jesus to that wretched cross. It was his unqualified resolution out of love for his father to do his father's will. And it was also his love for sinners like me. That was why Jesus stayed on that cross. Because of his love for the father and his love for sinners like us. That's what held him there. Let's turn to the end of the passage as we read today. And John's going to make it clear why he is giving this testimony. No surprise, but it's a good reminder to us. Look at verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. This is John himself. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Why? What's the purpose of all of this testimony? And really the book, the, the whole gospel of John so that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Or as we look on Christ whom we pierced, we have pierced because of our sins. Even today, as we look upon his willingness to give his life for us, let us again marvel and let it fuel, energize our love even more for this precious Savior who is willing to, fully capable of doing this all alone. Who's the only one, the precious of glory, who could do it, who could bring atonement, through his shed blood. And as awful as this scene is, Father, let's be reminded that Jesus had to go through this because of our sin. Let the weight of our sin fall heavy on us. Be reminded to seek, certainly in relationship with Jesus, that forgiveness of sin that's offered through faith. But then to seek relational forgiveness every day that we would not be entrenched in our sins, but be reminded that our sins are what took him to the cross. Let us seek forgiveness, purity, sanctification, and growth. Let us marvel at what Jesus is willing to do for us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. We see today the death of our King, King Jesus. And to see, first of all, that John makes clear that the king decided the very moment of his death, his death was voluntary. No man pressed it upon him. His request, he's going to make a request in verse 28, and his request is purposeful. But let me just read to you to kind of frame all this. We're going to keep going to a couple other of the synoptics, Luke in particular, to remind us of the background here that John doesn't give us. 23, and it was noon, and there was a darkness over all the earth until about 3 o'clock p.m., and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. That took place symbolizing that there was no more barrier because of what Jesus had accomplished in his atonement. There was no more barrier between us and the Father. Between us and God, but through Christ, 
those barriers are removed and we have access. Even as we pray today as believers, access to the Holy of Holies, to the Father himself, and the rending of that veil, symbolic of that, representative of that. And then back to John 19. As Jesus finishes all this up in the terribleness of the moment and the darkness of the hour, after this, John just kind of quickly the other and what took place. And he says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, what does it mean? That it means he was finished? It means that he had done everything necessary to provide forgiveness of sins. It means that what he did was enough for all time. And yes, it was finished. His suffering was finished. He was about ready to give his life up. But it more importantly means that everything that needed to be done for our sin was accomplished. And folks, it's a cry of victory. It is finished. The victory that Jesus accomplished. And also, as John continues here, I want to make very clear, he notes multiple fulfillments of Scripture, and this really represents an eyewitness. It's obvious to us that John is here watching, and he's realizing as these things take place, the Old Testament prophecy really is remarkable. All the passages of Scripture that we're going to look at briefly this morning, and John seeing all these things, and as a side note, this also demonstrates how well John knew Scripture. He knew the Old Testament scriptures well enough that as he saw these things take place, he saw that's a fulfillment in in David's songs. That's a fulfillment of the prophets in Zechariah. And he's noting these things, and he's in in wonder about these. We'll see that. And even as Jesus now that all is finished says, I thirst. John notes that that even, even Jesus requests for drink because he's thirsty. Even that phrase is a fulfillment of scripture. What is it a fulfillment of? Psalm 69. And you don't have to turn there. I had a read this morning. Read verse 21 again. They gave me, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And John notes that this was said to fulfill scripture, but it was the fact as well that Jesus truly was thirsty, but he had a purpose in this that we're going to see in just a minute. But you ever wonder this? Why does he drink now when earlier in the crucifixion narrative, he denied himself that same or, or a drink? Why does Jesus drink now when earlier he rejected it? Let me just read to you when he rejected it from that's recorded in Mark. Again, backtrack here. And they brought him to Golgotha. And Mark says they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. But he did not take it. Well, what's going on? What's the difference here? Well, folks, we need to understand this because it, again, uh, will put us in amazement at all that Jesus was willing to suffer for us. But that first drink that was offered him was, we could say, a more high-quality wine. It was a better beverage, and it was mixed with myrrh. What was myrrh? Well, myrrh and the effects of the alcohol would have a pain-numbing effect. 
And the synoptics mentioned that it was raised to him and he tasted it and he would take no more. Why wouldn't Jesus take any more at that point? Because he didn't want any of what he would experience to be dull by any numbing effect at all. Folks, he was willing to face God's cup of wrath with full awareness, to take it on to the fullest extent, to experience it to the fullest extent. And he wouldn't even take what we would say today as a Tylenol or an Advil. But he said, I will experience it all in full awareness of what's going on. Folks, Jesus was courageous and brave in this too. He is a man's man. He was strong in the midst of this. And he wouldn't take that drink to face, to intake God's full cup of wrath. stood there sounds pretty awful and it wasn't very good and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth this is not the same quality of the beverage they offered him earlier but this was the vinegar wine of the soldier it's all they got it was the best they had and when jesus at this point said i thirst all they had was this wine the sour vinegar type wine that he took, and it did quench his thirst in some minor way, but it had another effect as well that was very purposeful. It did fulfill Psalm 69, 21, as we saw earlier. It quenched his thirst. It fulfilled Psalm 69, but there's also something else that was very important for him. At this moment, and that tear his mouth, his very throat, because it was so dry, he could probably very, uh, barely eke out the words, I thirst. When he had that drink, he prepared his throat for one final cry. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, the synoptics say, even in Luke 23, it says, Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. And then the synoptics don't tell us what he said. But John does. And so he cries out with a loud voice, It is finished! He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was His request was purposeful. His words were decisive. Because Jesus was announcing that his atoning death, his payment for our sins was accomplished completely. And fully, there was nothing left to do, and there's nothing left to do today. We put our faith and trust in what he did. Even our faith and trust is a reaction. Jesus did it all. He paid it all. And he announces that at this moment, that he has done everything that he needs to do. And we ought to marvel in that. And folks, isn't that our hope? What do false religions tell us today? Every other religion, every other cult says there's still something left for us to do. Have that book that we've been giving out to people and trying to give out to our community called Done. And it's very, it's written by Carrie Schmidt. It's very appropriate because all the religions of the world say again, like I just said, you have to do something, but 
Christianity says there's nothing to do. It's done. It's finished. It's accomplished. So put your faith and trust in the one who accomplished it all. John calls us to do that. Luke and the other synoptics remind us that after he says it is finished, he says something else that fulfills scripture again. After he cries out it is finished, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And again, it says, having said this, he gave up the ghost. And it's now after this decisive statement that fulfills Psalm 31.5. Let me read that for you. Well, basically, it is David saying really those exact same words. Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. David is probably thinking in the difficulties and travails that he's going through, Lord, even if I um, die through these things and I lose my life, you have control of my spirit. But it's literal for Jesus. At this moment of victory, he decides when he will die and give up his spirit. Did you notice that? Jesus decides. No man takes his life from him. But he voluntarily offers up his life, bows his head, and a beautiful picture of him offering up his spirit to his father. And his father, you can almost imagine embracing him at that moment. And it's done. No one would take his life from him, but he alone would offer it up to the father. That ought to give us hope this morning, folks. Even in the most awful, horrible ordeal that we could contemplate, this idea of crucifixion and what Christ went through, his own terrible crucifixion. And folks, he was in control. He was master of it all. So what does that pretend for us? I've mentioned this before. This isn't a new concept, but I need to mention it again. Folks, whatever you're going through, however awful it is, however terrible it is and what you're going through. Jesus is master and in control of that. <clears throat> Illness, um, rebellious family members, struggles over sin, whatever that is, give it over to Jesus. He's master. He allows these things into the lives of his people for a purpose. And God will use these things. Jesus will use those things in your life. And he's in control. He's master of it all. So submit to him. Trust him in the midst of difficulties. Be confident that Jesus will allow the right things in, into your life and do a great work in your life through your greatest difficulties. The king decided the moment of his death. But as John points out as well, the king fulfilled the prophecy his death and many prophecies he continues to fulfill first of all that his bones were not broken let's look at verse 31 now we get a lot more information here since it was the day of preparation john reminds us again that john that jesus died on the day of the preparation of the sacrifices and that's key because again it's that picture of jesus as the lamb being prepared and slaughtered and the blood collected that Jesus, perfect lamb of glory, was also shedding his blood and was prepared as the final, fully sufficient sacrifice for our sin atonement. 
And even in those words, John reminds us that that lamb on the cross is sufficient for all that we need. The lamb of glory, shed blood, provides us atonement. But isn't it interesting then, as he reminds us of that, that he gives us some other details. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Isn't it funny now? Not funny, but interesting, I guess. The Jewish leadership all of a sudden seemed to be interested again in regulations, in Sabbath regulations. They haven't been too concerned about that through this faulty trial, the sham trial, and even usurping the verdict that Pilate had given, the official verdict of Rome was, this man is innocent. He's not guilty. And the Jews pressed this, and they were involved in a travesty of justice throughout this whole thing. But now they're concerned about their regulations again. Oh, we can't have these these crucified men on the cross before the Sabbath, what would happen if they died and they were there on the Sabbath? Well, that would, that would hinder our worship, certainly. Now they're interested in worship all of a sudden, and they don't want that embarrassment. And they make them, John makes the point here that this not was only was just a Sabbath, this was a very important Sabbath. It was the Passover Sabbath. It was one, and he says it was a very high day. It was a very important, significant Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders say, no, we don't want those guys on the cross and people to see all this. You know, what the law says about dead bodies and all of that. So, soldiers, can you kind of quicken this whole process up? And folks, really, as we read this and hear this, and this is a level of cruelty. And this final act that really is, is awful, just as awful as the rest of the crucifixion process. And it's difficult to even talk about. We need to understand, why would they break the legs of these criminals, these men, these victims on the cross? When they do that, the victims couldn't raise themselves. Remember, they're nailed to this cross, but they're still able to, they have that projection underneath them. They're able to kind of sit but when they rest, they feel the full agony of the pain that they're experiencing. And they would rest enough to get another breath and live a little longer. When your legs are broken, you can't do that. You can't even lift your body to get that breath. And you suffocate. Horrible. And these religious leaders aren't concerned at all about the cruelty the humanity that these men have to endure, even though they were criminals, all they were concerned about was their regulations. We don't want embarrassment. We, oh, we, we're, we're concerned about the law now. So whatever we have to do, whatever these men have to experience, just do it. Get rid of them so that we can remove the bodies before the Sabbath. By the way, this indicates as well that these criminals on either side of Jesus are still alive. And they would have to go through this agonizing process. Right? That didn't happen to Jesus. He'd already dealt with it on his own terms. In verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They didn't need to. In fulfillment of scripture, by the way, because he was already dead. 
I'll show you that more in just a minute how that fulfilled scripture. But I thought about this application. You know, honestly, if you think about it, some of the greatest cruelties <clears throat> that come in our world or in even church history throughout the ages come from false religion that are so focused on their ceremonial and the trivialities of their law that they will do whatever they have to do. Humanity isn't a concern for them as much as following after their regulations. You can see this in multiple religions, right, through history. A lack of concern for people's health and, and, and lives and even a cruelty as long as they follow through to the nth degree on their religious practices and their technicalities of service. And we can give example after example through our world of people that have been murdered and awful things that have happened in the name of religion to follow after their religion. We understand that. And really that's what was happening here with the Jewish leaders. But folks on a secondary level, I thought about this. Isn't it true that sometimes that we can get distracted by the technicalities of religious service, worship service even, and we can lose a real love or concern for other people? For humanity. Jewish leaders show us that's true. Doesn't matter the cruelty of what they're calling the Roman soldiers to do, just so we can um, look good religiously. Sometimes, in our zeal for the details of service to God, we need to make sure that they don't overshadow our care and concern, showing love for Christ to others. That's something that can happen, and we need to be careful with that. But let me show you here, as John is marveling um, at the or the fulfillment of Scripture. What was the fulfillment of Scripture in Jesus' legs not being broken? Well, I think the most important fulfillment is actually found in Exodus and Numbers. In Exodus 12, God gives the standard and the um, requirements for the sacrifice, a sacrificial lamb. I don't know if you ever thought about this before. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is bought from money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation shall keep it. Numbers 9 as well. They shall live it until morning, nor break any of its bones. It was God's requirement for the sacrifice that no bones be broken, that the bones were preserved. A perfect picture of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb, that not one of his bones would be broken. He would be the legitimate, perfect sacrifice. But there's also Psalm 34. That shows the care of God towards his own. And I think this even showed the care of the father. The father did not abandon Christ. He did not have to go through the awful torture of his broken legs. Psalm 34, verse 20, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. I think reflects this as well in a secondary way. And John is looking at this saying, that fulfills scripture. Wow, that fulfilled scripture too. This is remarkable. And he testifies of that for us. Jesus sighed, his bones were not broken, but his side was pierced. This also fulfilled scripture. In verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side. 
with a spear. And at once there came out both water and blood. Very practically to prove so that they know, they well, he looks dead. But we need to prove that. So they took one of their spears and they inserted it. They thrust it, thrust it into his side. Probably, not to be too technical here or gross, but probably into the lung cavity because it's been proven. That sort of thing that at that point, the separation of blood and water when someone dies, that takes place in, in their lungs. And so they wanted to make sure. And so they did this thing. and It was clear to them that this man was dead. And we knew that already because we had that testimony. But folks, it's important to John that he make clear that Jesus really was dead. Because even today, we've heard testimonies recently from some of you that have talked with others that would suggest in a ludicrous way that Jesus somehow fainted or survived this awful experience. John says, no way. No, we're not having any of that. He was dead. It was, it was um, a visible condition that was apparent to all that stood there. This was a dead body hanging on the cross at that point. Jesus truly did die. It was interesting as well on this reflection of the blood and water coming out. Did you know that some of the hymns that we sing have reflected on this moment and have seen the uh, reflections and uh, illustrations in the writing of these hymns of the cleansing power of the blood and the symbolic cleansing of water near the cross. Listen to this verse by Fanny Crosby. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Well, what is that fountain that she's referring to? It's this moment. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Also, Rock of Ages by Augustus Top Lady. I'd like to have that for a last name. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the riven side which flow be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. People have looked on this throughout the ages and be reminded of the cleansing power of Christ's blood through this picture. But John is moved in another way. Verse 35, and he lets it be known to us clearly. He's moved by the glory. Remember how Jesus has said throughout this gospel that I will be glorified. And as hard as it is to understand, in this awful moment with his dead body hanging on a tree, John sees the glory of the crucified Christ as he reflects back and on the way in which his death fulfilled scripture and his atoning sacrifice. And so he's thinking, again, this scripture is being fulfilled. This being scripture is being fulfilled. And as he's writing, it's almost as if he can't help himself. And he says, I bore witness. I saw these things. As I was watching Jesus die, I saw fulfillment of scripture. My true verse 35. I know I'm telling the truth. You can trust this. Of course, the Holy Spirit's guiding him in this too. So, of course, we can trust it. But that you may also believe. And John is saying, Jesus' death fulfilled so much scripture, folks, that it ought to, uh, there ought to be no question in our minds that we can believe and put our faith and trust in Jesus' work on the cross. That is why I'm writing this to you. That's the purpose of my gospel, that you will put your faith and trust in Christ and the, 
sufficient work that he's accomplished. Well, what scriptures is he referring to? Again, we saw some of these, verse 36. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. We already saw the scriptures that talk about not one of his bones will be broken. But then he says there's another scripture. And again, another scripture says they will look on him who they have pierced. I think certainly of Psalm 23, we've gone through this. Verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. I think could also be illustrative of, of that none of his bones are, are broken. But a more direct fulfillment comes directly from Zechariah chapter 12. Let's go ahead and turn there as we finish. What other scripture? This Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I know it's sometimes a harder book to find at the end of your Old Testament. says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and wept bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Another prophecy fulfilled. Seeing Jesus pierced in this way reminds John of all this. And he says, folks, this ought to move you to believe. And his first readers surely had these thoughts in their minds. I'm going to give you another quote here as we finish up this morning. As we have seen, Jesus in control of this whole thing. He decided the moment of his death, he fulfilled the prophecies of his death. D.A. Carson says this, John's first readers, familiar with their Bibles, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek because their Bibles would have been the Old Testament, right? Familiar with their Bibles would remember that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. That in his gospel, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. They would have seen this crucifixion of Christ and remembered, as we should too remember, that here is the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep. But they might also remember that the next chapter of Zechariah, we've just been, the very next chapter, chapter 13, begins with the words, and this is fascinating, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And it would be hard for them not to reflect on the flow of blood and water from Jesus' side, the promise of the Spirit, and the cleansing and life that issued from those new covenant promises. The new covenant was completed. And all that we need for salvation and for cleansing of sin and for eternal life was made available to us moment and of course the power of death and hell and Satan and sin that we'll see next week in his resurrection but folks as I wrap all of this together what should our takeaway be even as this man just mentioned here as John's first readers who knew their Bibles and were thinking these things we have a group of people here that know their Bibles very well we all know our Bibles well enough to realize that all of this that took place 
in Jesus' sacrifice was part of God's plan from eternity past. Do not these references in the Old Testament make that clear? Should it not move us? John says it should move us. It should, just like it moved him to bear witness. It ought to move us that God had a plan for all of this and that Jesus was willing to go through all of this for us. And that ought to move us to share John's testimony. If you've ever said to someone, you know, have you considered reading the book of John? You're doing what John has asked you to do here. You're sharing the testimony that others might believe. Now, I would say if you're going to do that, also remember to study it along with them. There's some parts of John that are, are, are difficult, but certainly we're able to explain them. Go through of John as you were moved Jesus, I'm so glad that you did that. Now I'm going to go about my busy week. No, John said. First of all, you be moved. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, John is saying when you read these things, believe. That is the purpose of this. Christ died and gave his life so that we could have salvation. Believe the truth and then proclaim it like I'm doing to others. So they can hear the truth of the gospel as well. Now, on a daily practical basis, are we willing to do that this week? If you're not moved yet by these fulfillments of scripture and Jesus' death, read back over them. Marvel that in God's timing, exactly what he said in the Old Testament took place. Remember that he's in sovereign control of all of this and sovereign control of our lives as well. And let that move us to proclaim Jesus to a world that needs redemption today. I hope that the scriptures move that and um, accomplish that in your lives as we go from here. Father, I truly desire, and I hope that we all do, for these truths, Jesus' voluntary sacrifice on the cross, that he gave up his own life. No one took it from him. We went through all of this burden bearing of our sin on the tree for us to have life. And if there's someone still here that still needs to put their faith and trust in Jesus and has not been moved by this, Lord, help them today be of Christ for them and embrace him as Savior. Lord, help us all to be motivated through this, to go out this week. And just get to know someone a little better so that we might at some point be able to share all that Jesus has done and say, look, this was God's plan throughout eternity. Look at the scriptures that were fulfilled. This was an actual event. It took place. And Jesus offers salvation. It's real. You can depend upon it. Give us confidence because of what we read in these verses, the fulfillment of scripture. Share Jesus with others. Help us to do that well. And even as we look forward to Easter and celebrating the resurrection of Christ, let us share the joy of that with others as well. Help us to do that well and faithfully. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.